in. I'm going to read the text in a moment. But while you find the passage in your Bibles, um, I want to throw a quick question at you. Have you ever thought about how we use some words so often that they lose the meaning they're actually intended to have? I think awesome is one of those words. So about three years ago, I decided that I was going to stop using the word awesome so flippantly. I decided to reserve this word to describe things that were actually awesome. See, awesome isn't a scoop of ice cream that I really enjoy. The ice cream might be good. It might even be great ice cream. But awesome, awesome describes something that's so grand that whatever's being talked about actually leads a person to a state of awe. See, awesome is what happens when we experience something that that leaves us with limited words to describe it, so we're forced to use a word like awesome. Awesome is when you hike to the top of a mountain at just the right time of day, and you witness the sun either rising or setting to begin or end the day, and you can't help but think to yourself, the God who created this is an awesome God. Right before Lauren and I got married, my best man in our wedding threw me in a bachelor party, and he thought it'd be a good idea for us to go skydiving. I got a pretty stern talking to from Lauren, and she, in kind of a redundant fashion, told me that if I died skydiving, she was going to kill me. Um, <laughs> but Shane, being who he is, he set up this excursion anyways. Uh, all of us that did it survived, praise be to God. But I, man, I remember during the skydiving experience, just kind of sitting on the edge of the plane, You know, I was strapped to the front of my guide because it was a tandem jump, and so there was a moment where he's positioning himself on the edge of the plane, preparing to jump, and because I'm strapped to his chest, I'm literally hanging outside of the plane, just in midair. And so there were a few seconds where he's getting himself situated, I'm hanging there, and during that time, I was looking out at the clouds that I was about to jump into, just kind of scanning the horizon, taking all of this in. There was all of this beautiful Tennessee landscape that that God himself had so strategically designed and placed exactly where he desired it to be. And in that moment, I was thinking to myself, this is awesome. God, who created this, is an awesome God. And what was interesting about this is that uh, the the, the men who are guides during the skydiving, uh, the conversations they had, the jokes they cracked, the hobbies they talked about enjoying, None of these things would have led me to think that these were followers of the Lord. But once we'd landed, once we're on the ground, and I was going on and on and on about how awesome God was because of what I'd just seen, all of these men started to agree. They said, yeah, God is awesome. If he created what we just saw, he must be an awesome God. And see, I think that's what awesome is. See, I think awesome are those things that might lead even those who don't know or worship God to be in awe of him, because of the work of his that they witness. And in our passage today, we're going to be introduced to a woman who is the queen of Sheba. And this queen, at witnessing God's work amongst one of God's people, she's going to be led to acknowledge how awesome God is without actually knowing who God is. And so what I want to propose to us as we walk through this passage is that as the people of God, our lives, our testimonies of salvation, every single thing about us, it should all collectively kind of form this evidence that God could hold up and present to the world so that they'd be led to be in awe of him 
as a result of what they witnessed amongst his people. So 1 Kings chapter 10, would you stand with me in honor of God's word being read? First Kings chapter 10, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. The passage reads, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very, with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought from gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a great quantity, a great amount of almug wood and precious stones. And the king made of the almug wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also lyres and harps for the singers. No such almug wood has come or been seen to this day. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked, besides what was, what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated, and would you join me in a moment of prayer once more as I ask for the Lord's help. Father, we give you thanks for this day and for what this day, the Lord's Day, commemorates. We thank you that in Christ we can have renewed righteousness and renewed relationship with God our Father. I pray and ask that we rejoice in that today. I pray and ask that as we hear your word be preached, that we would uh, seek to be all the more faithful to give evidence of this newness that has taken place in us because of what Christ has done. And I pray and ask, Lord, that you would give me help to preach your word with clarity, with boldness, with faithfulness. I pray and ask that you would do what only you can and allow your word to pierce the hearts of your people so that we might all leave edified and built up. And God, I pray and ask that you would make up for all of my human inadequacies. Use me now as your vessel to proclaim your word to your people. It's in the name of Christ himself I pray. Amen. So the first thing I want us to notice in looking at the passage is that the queen of Sheba is unnamed. The text tells us that she's a queen and it names the nation that she's the queen of, but it doesn't actually tell us what her name is. And I think that's probably somewhat intentional by the author. 
See, it seems that from the very outset of this passage, he's mostly concerned with his understanding, not who the Queen of Sheba is, but that King Solomon has such a level of fame and popularity that the queen of any foreign nation would have known who he was. The text says that she heard about Solomon's fame concerning or connected with the name of the Lord. And now back then there were no social media accounts. You didn't have a LinkedIn that you could go and list your employment on. So if someone was, was, was a big enough deal that foreign rulers in foreign nations were actually hearing about them in their foreign nations, this person must have been pretty prominent in society. And here you've got the Queen of Sheba. She's heard of Solomon's fame. And the text says that she heard of it concerning the name of the Lord. Now that was the case because during this time, uh, there was such a heightened focus on, on spiritual powers and the worship of false gods that if a nation's ruler was evidently blessed, foreign rulers would assume that whatever god this nation worshipped must have been a god worth looking into and potentially following. So she's heard of Solomon's fame and she's heard of Solomon's god. And it says that she wanted to come and test all of this by giving Solomon hard questions. Uh, some translations use the term riddles there, but she wants to give him hard questions to see how wise he actually was. And he also tells us all of this in the very first verse alone. Now, the reason I think he sets us up with all of these key phrases and indicators is because he wants us as readers to understand and to see that this unnamed queen who's heard of Solomon's fame and heard of the God he worships and wants to come and test his wisdom, I think he wants us to see that by doing this, she's also testing the God who gave him the wisdom. She's heard of Solomon's fame, but his fame concerns the name of the Lord. And with this, I think the author wants us to see that this Queen of Sheba represents the world and their skepticism towards both God and the people of God. So this is point number one. The very first thing we're looking at and making note of from the text, the world's skepticism. The world's skepticism. Something I believe we as God's people must be aware of as we continue to live in this kind of secular anti-God world is that there are people in this world who are watching those who call themselves Christians. And it's not with the best intentions, it's not with the benefit of doubt that they're watching. There are people in this world who are so anti-God that they make their lives about watching and waiting and trying to witness the people of the Lord slip. And I think that's a bit of what we have here with the Queen of Sheba. She shows up in Jerusalem, she has a retinue of people and servants. She brought all of these riches with her. Now note, uh, that's likely because she wants to make a political deal with Solomon if he actually ends up being who everyone says who he is. Uh, but she shows up in Jerusalem with all of these people and all of this stuff. And in verse 4, the text tells us that after she got there, Solomon answered all of her questions. Here's something we need to know about verse 4. So I'm preaching from the ESV. But I think the CSB's translation of verse 4 better helps us to see what's happening here with the Queen of Sheba and King Solomon. Where the ESV reads that the Queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the CSB uses the word observed. It says that she observed his wisdom, his palace, the temple, so on and so forth. And now the reason I like what the CSB does there is because it helps us to see that this Queen of Sheba seeing all of Solomon's wisdom It's not her just giving a passive glimpse to it. It says that she observed his wisdom. And I think it's showing us that the queen was intentionally looking at all that Solomon had to offer. She's paying attention to the very details of his fortune. 
I think this is probably likely uh, like the, the, the kind of observation, observation that your mother-in-law does when, when she comes to your house and, and kind of drags her finger along your furniture just to make sure you've been doing a good job cleaning up and like, that there's not too much dust. I think that's the observation we have here with the Queen of Sheba. She shows up and she's walking throughout Solomon's palace, giving intent to all that he has. This actually makes me think of when I was buying Lauren's engagement ring. Uh, I went to a jeweler that some friends of mine recommended. Uh, they said the guy was, was uh, he sold great stones and he was well-educated about his work. And so I go and I'm talking with him about what I think I want to buy. I'm like, yeah, I think Lauren wants this kind of diamond on this kind of gold. And he says, okay, are you looking more for clarity or are you looking more for size? I never thought about diamonds a day in my life. So I'm like, I'm not sure what clarity is. Uh, could you explain to me what that is and then I'll let you know. And so what he does is he goes and gets a few diamonds and he begins teaching me about the different levels of clarity within a diamond. And he explained how the size of a diamond isn't actually the top indicator of value, but the clarity, meaning how crystal clear a diamond is, how much capacity a, a diamond has to shine brightly. That's what gives a stone its value. He said, no, he, he, he does the thing where he gets the, the microscope and he pulls out his little flashlight and he starts twirling these diamonds under the microscope. And as I'm looking through the microscope with him, what I'm seeing is, I'm like, okay, oh, I understand. I get it. Some of these diamonds shine much more brightly than the other ones do. I was learning to see the clarity of diamonds. I was being taught about the value of diamonds because I paused to give intentional observation to them. And you and I both know that there are a lot of things in this life that can appear vibrant from afar until you get up close with intentional observation. And so here we've got the Queen of Sheba, and she's observing Solomon's palace in this way. Now remember, she represents the skepticism of the world. So as we continue thinking about how the world is skeptical of us as God's people and how they're purposely watching us trying to see if we're who we actually say we are, I think this should lead us to ask a question of ourselves. What will people see if they get up close and observe our lives? What will they find? Will they find that we're faithful in our jobs and in our schoolwork because we do all things for the Lord and not for man? Will they find that we have healthy marriages where we seek to serve one another because that's what God calls spouses to do? Will they find that we make it a priority to be with our church family because we want to be joined together in love and fellowship like the Lord calls us to? Will they find that dating relationships are honoring to the Lord even behind closed doors because we pursue purity and abstinence outside of marriage like God has told us to in his word? What will people see if they get up close and observe our lives? Uh, we can all attest to the fact, right, that you don't have to live very long to, to know that you can live a life that appears vibrant from afar while having all kinds of ungodly stuff going on up close. If people were to know our thoughts or what goes on in our hearts, would they think the same way about us that we can lead them to think about us from afar? Friends, I think we should want to be people who repent for those sins that are hidden so deep that the world would never know they were there without getting up close and observing through a microscope. 
Let's be a people who search our hearts for those sins so that we can be deeply pure before the Lord with a diamond-like clarity that shines to Him and pleases Him when He twirls our lives under His own microscope. I think God cares about the details that become clear with close observation. And if the world is going to be skeptical, then shouldn't our lives be vibrant and provide evidence of who God is? So the next thing I want us to look at is the king's evidence. We've seen the world's skepticism. Now we're going to look at the king's evidence. Now if you look at what's listed about the queen's observations in verse 4, you'll notice that she covers a broad range of categories of what she observes. She observes Solomon's wisdom, uh, the palace he lives in, the temple he built for the Lord, all the way down to the clothing of his servants. And I'm pretty sure the author listed these things because he wants us to recall that these are things which God himself had given details about. These are things that God himself had given instructions to Solomon and King David for how they should be built and organized within the, the people of God. If you go back and read 1 Chronicles 28, you'll see where David, Solomon's father and the king who reigned before him, he gives instructions for building the temple and for building the houses that go along with the temple and for building all the things that would come together and form this grand establishment in Jerusalem. And then in 1 Chronicles 28, 19, we read this. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the works of these plans. So David says he understood all of this because God himself had made the instructions clear to him. And now at this point in the outline, we're talking about the king's evidence. But in my notes, there's a capital K on this point. That's because I'm not referring to lowercase k, King Solomon, but to capital K, King Jehovah. I believe this is the king of kings and, and him providing evidence of who he is. This is his own proof of who he is. See, Solomon had a permanent stance in society because God had given it to him. Solomon was given influence because he was called to act on behalf of the Lord. And all throughout the Old Testament, we have this theme. In Exodus chapter 7, we see that God rescues the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt, and he tells his people, I'm doing this so that even Egypt will know that I am the Lord. And then later in Exodus 16, the people are complaining because they don't trust God to provide for them. And then God blesses them with an abundance of food, and he says, through this provision, you will know that I am the Lord your God. And then all throughout Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God tells the people, teach these truths to your children so that your future generations will continue knowing that I am the Lord your God. And then later, it continues being prophesied. Like in Isaiah 45, 3, Ezekiel 28, 24, Joel 2, 27, God's saying, I'll give you rescue, I'll give you riches, I'll give provision, I'll give protection, but might everything I give you and might everything I make you, Israel, be given and made so that you and everyone else will know that I am the Lord your God and I am the Lord over all. Everything the Lord gives us, saints, everything he makes us, he gives and makes so that the world would know he is the Lord God. He gives it so we can use it for his glory. And the queen herself even hints at this in verse 9. She sees all of Solomon's wisdom. She sees his wealth, and she recognizes that he has it because his God has given it to him. Friends, do we live knowing that we're called to point to God in everything we do. It's been that way since the beginning of time. I give you this. I make you that so that the world will know I am the Lord. And see, in the same way that God had given Solomon instructions for how the temple should be built, God has given us instructions for how our lives should be built. 
In 2 Peter 1.3, God says that his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness. Friends, we are to be God's evidence and of his glory to the skeptical world, and he's given us the instructions for how we're to do so in his word. And now some of you might be like me. You may read this passage and, and kind of think to yourself, oh, I can shake these applications. Uh, that doesn't apply to me. I hear what you're saying, great, but, but this sermon isn't one for me. It's not for me because I don't have a whole lot of wealth to show off. And I don't have a whole lot of material possessions, so this passage just kind of misses me. Well, so then I say, no, we're wrong. See, we may not have a lot of material possessions, but all of, in this, all of us in this room has, have, have life. And the entirety of our beings, the totality of who we are, it should all be aimed at making a big deal of who God is. The Queen of Sheba heard about Solomon's fame concerning the name of the Lord. And now in the Old Testament, fame and, and, and wealth and, and fortune, it was all considered an indicator of blessing and favor. But in the New Testament, some of us may have fame and fortune, but all of us who are followers of Christ have the number one more significant indicator of blessing and favor from the Lord. We have new life in Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit that infills us. And it's this, saints, that we're to leverage and steward and put on the forefront for the world to see our Lord's glory. When we gain new life in Christ, we gain the number one most valuable thing ever worthy of having. And we should steward that blessing as a gift given to us to glorify the one who's given it. Amen? I think I'd argue that what the queen witnesses in the Old Testament in Jerusalem, God is desiring for Oakhurst Baptist Church to be in the 21st century Charlotte, North Carolina. Notice that one of the things she observes in verse 5 is the Lord's temple. It says that after she'd seen Solomon's burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. Now, the house of the Lord, or the temple, that in the Old Testament was the architectural structure that represented God's presence. If you go back and read chapter 8, you'll see where Solomon has this long dedication of the temple, and he dedicates it as a place where, where God would dwell and, and where the people of God would come to worship him. But in the New Testament, Christ comes, and there is no more physical temple. See, thankfully, there isn't one place that represents the presence of God anymore. But we, the people of God, we carry God's presence with us because he fills us with his presence. He fills us with his spirit when he saves us. Ephesians 2 tells us that we do this as individual bricks, which come together to form a holy temple for the Lord. But do we see the joy in this? Friends, we glorify God as individual bricks which come together to form a breathtaking, awe-inspiring house of the Lord himself. We glorify God in that way. And one of the clearest ways we see this nowadays is through our involvement with the local church. So when we do things like gather on a Sunday morning and, and sing worshipful songs like we've done today, that glorifies God. Or when we're outside the church walls and, and we provide a meal for a church family that's fallen into a rough spot, or when we choose to intentionally love church members that think differently than we do about some major societal issues, or when we simply call one another to check in and offer accountability and encouragement, all of these things bring glory to the Lord. And they might just lead someone, like the Queen of Sheba, to be in awe of who God is. In John 13, Jesus says that we'll be known by our love for one another. Well, how great would it be 
if the people of Charlotte, North Carolina, could look at the saints of OBC and say, I don't know what it is about those folks. I'm not sure why they love one another in such a radical way, but I'm drawn to it, and I want to go be a part of it. Especially during this day where everything is polarizing, right? There's so many issues that can polarize us as God's people. But let's strive to show the church as a unified body when the world around us demonstrates the opposite with division. We as individuals and as church family are our king's evidence of his glory. And when the world witnesses his evidence, through us as the people of God, we give them a testimony that cannot be denied. So the next thing I want us to look at is the queen response, how she responds to this evidence. We've seen the world's skepticism. We've seen the king's evidence. Now we're going to look at the world's response. That's point number three, the world's response. Now in verse 9, we see that the queen of Sheba tells Solomon, Blessed be the Lord your God, after she witnesses all of his fortune. She sees all he has and she says, Blessed be the Lord your God. And I don't think that this is the queen of Sheba worshiping. But I think this is the queen realizing that making friends with Solomon and making friends with his God would be a good political move for her. Some scholars would argue that, that this is salvation taking place. Uh, there's a lot of debate around this verse uh, and, and, and whether or not the queen was saved. But it seems to me that the majority of evidence in this passage suggests that this is more about politics than it is about worship. See, this was during a time where foreign rulers would, would form alliances and act as if they respected one another's gods solely for the purpose of securing favor and feeling as though they'd be helped if they ever went to war and needed the help from a foreign nation. And this queen, she doesn't, she, she doesn't point out that God himself is great. She blesses his name and points out all that he's given to Solomon. So it seems that she's more focused on the, the wisdom and wealth and prosperity and power of Solomon. And she thinks that paying him the right amount of all this stuff that she brought with her will have him to help her if she ever goes to war and needs to rely on Israel. But she does notice that God has eternal love for his people. And she sees that all she heard about God giving Solomon wisdom was indeed true. The problem is that it leads her to admire what God gives his people in physical form without desiring what God gives his people in spiritual form. And listen to me, friends. There will be some who understand God to be a sovereign ruler without understanding him to be their sovereign ruler. There will be some who have a cognitive understanding of who God is without ever having a heartfelt understanding of him. There might even be some here today who can identify with this. You, you may uh, see all that God is, but you don't acknowledge him as all of that for you. Or it might be that you're moved by how powerful God is, but you're not actually moved by how his power has changed your life by affording you the chance at salvation. Do you live with joyful obedience because of what God has done? Or do you merely confess with your lips, blessed be the Lord your God? And are you like the Queen of Sheba, forced to say, blessed be your God, because you don't know him in a way that allows you to say, blessed be the Lord my God? The Queen of Sheba recognizes that Solomon's God is magnificent. So she makes an investment into Solomon's kingdom. And if you look quickly at the last verse of our passage, you see that it tells us she then returned home to her own country. 
I think the author wrote it that way to kind of reinforce that this was her making a political move, then returning home to continue worshiping her false gods. She's an unnamed queen, which is likely another sign that she wasn't one of God's people, and the author doesn't name her because without her name being written in God's book of life, neither her nor her name would bear any lasting significance. So again, there will be some who come with skepticism, witness the evidence, then respond by acknowledging God's power without giving their lives to him. And what we have to remember in those moments, friends, is that there's not a whole lot we can do about it. God will save who he saves. We're just called to be faithful in presenting the right evidence so that all would have a chance to come and know our great God. And that brings us to my last point. The last thing I want us to look at is what Solomon does with the queen's gifts. So point number four, the king's responsibility. The king's responsibility. Now this point in my outline is no longer talking about uh, uppercase K King God. We're now talking about lowercase K King Solomon. Uh, Solomon shows us how we as the people of God should steward the blessings and influence that God gives us. And there's nothing fascinating about what Solomon does in showing us this. Verses 9 through 11 show us that the Queen of Sheba gives Solomon one of the largest gifts he's ever seen, and then another political ruler comes along and does the same thing in verse 11. So Solomon has gotten these two large gifts of valuables, and verse 12 tells us that he begins using it to make the Lord's temple more beautiful. Look at verse 12. And the king made of the almug wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also lyres and harps for the singers. No such almug wood has come or been seen to this day. So Solomon took this platform and this wisdom and, and all this fame and fortune that God had given him, and he used, it to, he used it all to prove that God was worthy of worship, and then he takes what's given to him as a result of his fame, and he immediately invests it back into the temple of the Lord. He immediately invested in a way for God to receive more glory. Can you say you do, do the same thing, friend? Do we live life? taking all that God has given us, taking all that he's made us, seeking to be a blessed people for the sake of blessing God? Or are we more about using God's gifts for our own personal gain? When people look at our lives and how we use our gifts from God, are they left breathless at the glory of the Lord like the Queen of Sheba was? Is there a level of holiness and love for God among us that would take someone's breath away? This is the only way worthy of living, friends. Solomon knew this, and that's why he instantly invested all the stuff that the Queen of Sheba gave him back into the Lord's temple. But now what I don't want to do is to make it seem like uh, King Solomon is all good in this passage, because I do have bad news. I come up in a preaching tradition where we tend to talk to one another in church. So why don't you just look at the person that you came with and say, uh-oh. Say, bad news is coming. So this passage doesn't end by continuing on with the good, holy Solomon that we've seen thus far. This passage ends with a demonstration of Solomon's humanity and his imperfection. Verse 13 it's one of those verses that, man, in my sermon prep, commentaries kind of let me down. You know, sometimes you're studying a passage and, and you come to a verse that seems like nobody's got a single thing to say. 
And so I get to verse 13 and I read, And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. So she turned back and went back to her own land with her servants. And no commentator seemed to want to explain why this verse was there. So I'm like, okay, either there's something extremely obvious, and I'm just missing it, or even the commentators aren't sure why verse 13 is there. So I start doing the seminary stuff, you know, the things they teach you when, when, you, when you go through school. I start asking all the good questions, like, why is this here? Why would God have inspired this verse to be written? What is the author trying to communicate by writing this particular verse? I start working through all the layers and, and asking all the good questions that lead to faithful biblical interpretation. And then it just dawns on me. It's like, this is King Solomon. The Queen of Sheba is a foreign woman. And what we see when we look at the entire life of King Solomon is that although he was a great king who did many great things for God, and he was a great king who built this glorious temple for God, and he was a great king who God gave exponential wisdom to. And he was the king who had established this extravagant lifestyle that we've just read about. And he was the king who, who, who rulers from foreign nations would come and, 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 and try to soak up wisdom just by spending time around him. Although he was all of that, King Solomon was also a human king. And he had human flaws. And the word of the Lord tells us that King Solomon had a problem saying no to foreign women. The very next chapter... It tells us that God has forbidden, he had forbidden King Solomon from marrying foreign women because they would lead him to worship foreign gods. And then we see this strange devotion to the Queen of Sheba in verse 13. And now it doesn't tell us that she became one of his wives or that they became lovers or anything, but we do see that King Solomon has a strong liking for the woman. Like not only does he give her whatever she wants, but he gives to her beyond his royal bounty. In the rest of chapter 10, Tells us a little more about Solomon's riches, but I think the author in chapter 10, verse 13, is showing us how King Solomon would give up anything for this foreign queen. And I think he shows us that in order to prepare us for what he writes at the beginning of chapter 11. Now thus far, the entire book of 1 Kings has been all about Solomon's wealth and his wisdom and his faithfulness to God. But then we come to chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, and we see King Solomon's kryptonite. I'm going to read those verses really quickly. Verse, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they would turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. 700 wives and 300 concubines, most of them foreign. So King Solomon fails, and despite all of the good he'd done, he ends up disobeying direct orders from the Lord. And I told you this was bad news. But here's why it's not only bad news for King Solomon, but it's also bad news for all of us. Because if we're going to compare ourselves to King Solomon at any point in this passage, we cannot forget to compare ourselves to him right here in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 11. What we're seeing is that King Solomon was flawed. He was sinful. He was incapable of living in perfect obedience to God. 
And the exact same thing is true about each and every one of us. We're flawed. We're sinful. We're incapable of living in perfect obedience to the Lord. And the very bad news is that God demands perfection of us. God, the one who created the entire universe, he demands that all things worship him and exist for his glory. But we as mankind, we fall short of that glory. We sin and we fail to fulfill the mission and the purpose that God gave us at creation. And this is the very reason that none of us should be arrogant in our faith, right? We shouldn't look at the world and and look at other sinners with a condescending way of thinking, but we should instead be humble and evangelize and invite other people to enjoy this, this holy life before God that we get to live because of his grace toward us. And then more than anything else, it's also for this reason that we must say praise be to God for our holy Savior, Jesus Christ. See, in Christ, friends, we are in, what we're incapable of doing, God has done for us. Christ came from heaven, and he put on human flesh. He lived a perfect life without sin, and then he died a death as if he had not. Also, that we who do sin could be seen in light of his perfection, be saved from eternal damnation, and be reconciled to God our Father if we believe this truth and make him our Lord. So in conclusion, my encouragement for you is to not go and, to go and try to muster up strength to be a better version of King Solomon. My encouragement for you is for you to reckon with the fact that you can't be a better version of King Solomon, but to praise God that he himself has provided the perfect King Jesus. And and, in reckoning with this truth, friends, realize that we should be compelled not only to live lives of worship, but to steward our blessings as a blessed people for a blessed God, both as individuals and as the corporate people of God. Ponder what God has done for you. And in your pondering, strive to make sure that all you have, all you are, is stewarded so that he's glorified to the world as the great giver who is the only one worthy of worship. Amen? Let's pray.